0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, broadcasting from a bunker in an undisclosed location. Kevin, I know you've seen 10 Cloverfield Lane. Well, that's my life right now.
1: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. The only other occupant of this bunker is my wife, and she's a better roommate than
0: John Goodman is in that movie. Listeners, the world is changing. But Seeing and Believing is still here. On this episode, we launch a very special marathon. For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at South Korean cinema.
1: Yes, we're going to kick that off too with newly anointed Oscar winner Bong Joon-ho. We're going to be reviewing an earlier film of his from 2010. It's title,
0: Mother. That review is coming up, plus some other recommendations for your quarantine viewing. On this episode, episode 240 of Seeing and Believing. 엄마가 했던 거. 맞지. We are here, episode 240 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, I have to ask you, how are you doing in quarantine? I am in quarantine. I have not really interacted with many people over the last couple days. And it's not because I'm sick, I'm just trying to do my best to flatten the curve. I feel like I'm doing fine. I feel like I'm okay. Got a lot of books, a lot of movies. How about yourself?
1: So here's the thing, is as an introvert, I kind of expected that this whole social distancing thing would be a piece of cake for me. Like that's what introverts want anyway, right? Is social distancing. And the weird thing is, I've found that working from home, you know, my wife goes goes, she has to still go into work because she works at a senior community, so she still has to be there with the residents. For me, you know, I'm telecommuting, and so it's just me at home and it's a, it gets a little bit lonesome sometimes, so I'm glad to be connecting with you over Skype Wave. It's uh, It's, it's some, some good
0: social interaction to counteract the social distancing. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not alone, so I'm working from home as well. Our two kids are here. Of course, Priscilla is here. So, so we've got kind of a lot kind of happening. I will say this. First day of just kind of social distancing, I... I don't know if I broke my toe, but it's a color it's not supposed to be right now. So no no running. <laughs> if if I'm wanting to get out and run and let that be my my time outdoors, can't do that. Um but we're we're okay. We're we're going. It's been it's been less than a week though, so <laughs> there's there's still uh you know
1: Three weeks or so to go until oh, things maybe calm down. Who knows? Yeah. Everyone stay 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 safe out there for sure. Meanwhile, I guess I'll just have to content myself with building a castle out of all this toilet paper and hand sanitizer <laughs> I have, you know. Make a little parapet for from which I can, you know, easily reach the hand sanitizer. Okay. You know, you make your own fun when it comes to quarantine. Yeah, so you
0: you are the reason why all the all these shenanigans are happening. Uh I I have enough <laughs> no, toilet paper. No, no. I'm, I, we're doing okay over here. Um, but <laughs> so,
1: yeah, no, we 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 tried to we we are realistically provisioned. We didn't do anything crazy yeah. like go and buy up all of the toilet paper in in Walgreens. I did see somebody doing that, so that was that was my sort of uh, post apocalyptic kind of experience that thus far was seeing somebody like struggle uh-huh. to their car with a shopping cart. Literally filled with TP. Okay, so that was a that was an experience. Okay,
0: so so you're so you're saying I was gonna ask. Okay, so you got you got provisions. It is kind of funny uh, to go to the store and see what people feel like they need to stock up on. Um, just wild stuff. I saw one person <laughs> just with a lot of wine, a lot of wine. That was it. Um, <laughs> another person with like those little juice boxes for kids. Just That was all. It was juice boxes and chips. Um, But yeah, hoping everybody on a series, I hope everybody's staying safe. And uh, the theaters around me, Kevin, I think almost everyone is closed. Um, I would assume if there are any that are open, they are going to be closed soon. So that kind of presents a little bit of a problem for the podcast, just a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's the same story here. All the theaters are closed. That's just not happening. And even if the ones in my particular area were open, you know, you and I, Wade, we kind of decided that maybe it's not the best idea to take, you know, keep the show running as normal and... And you know, either review movies that nobody is seeing or encourage people to go out and see movies when they should really be staying home. So, we came up with something a little bit special for the days of quarantine, maybe something that people can still watch along in our audience without necessarily putting themselves at risk. So, I'm pretty excited about this. I think it's going to be pretty
0: great. Yeah, so for at least the next four weeks. We are going to be working through some important films in South Korean cinema. Now, this is kind of a a blind spot for me, Kevin, so I'm excited to work through these movies, and we're going to offer a list of the films a little bit later on so that our listeners can track these down. Now, we made sure that with all the films we're going to talk about, uh, they are available to rent digitally, so... I know the library near me, it's closed. A lot of people's libraries are closed. Stores are closed. Uh, you can find these online to rent. iTunes, Amazon, YouTube. So, uh, hypothetically, all of you listeners could watch these movies along with us. We hope that you do. And uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun to discuss these and uh, really kind of keep the conversation going since we we need more conversations Today, more than more than ever.
1: Yeah, definitely need to make your own social interaction when you're staying home with with just your very close family. We've got four movies on the docket right now, Wade. We do maybe reserve the right to extend the South Korean movie marathon if things look like they're the situation is going to warrant it. But we'll start with just four for now, and I'm really excited to talk about this movie that we have this week because not only is it one of the deeper cuts from Bong Joon-ho who is a personal favorite of mine and hopefully will become a personal favorite for many people now that he has won an Oscar yeah so I feel
0: like people have been talking about Bong Joon-ho really kind of ever since Parasite was released and I've I've had people come to me and talk to me about his, his film, Parasite, and ask me about him as a filmmaker who really kind of aren't too interested in foreign language cinema. So that's been kind of fun. And I'm glad that we can continue that today with his film, Mother, as you mentioned, from 2010. So I'm going to get us started with the film's official synopsis. A mother, a nameless mother, played by Kim hye Ja, lives quietly with their 28-year-old son, Do Jun, played by Won Bin, providing herbs and acupuncture to neighbors. One day, a girl is brutally murdered, and Do Jun is charged with the killing. Now, it's his mother's task to either prove him innocent or leave him imprisoned. Now, Kevin, I know you're a big fan of Bong Jun hos work, And I think you've even recommended this film, Mother, on a previous podcast. So I'm curious, how does Mother fall for you on Bong's overall filmography? Top of the list, middle of the list, or bottom of the list? It's definitely near the top of the list for me. I really
1: like this film a lot. And you're right that I I think it was a recommendation uh, on a past episode, Once Upon a Time. Uh, it's it's gets a little bit crowded at the top for me because it's hard for me to decide which of his films I like the best. Uh, Parasite now is probably up close to the top, if not at the top. I also think Memories of Murder is extremely strong, and that probably would have been the movie we were reviewing today if it were actually available on streaming. But I'm not disappointed to be talking about mother instead, because this is kind of part of that trifecta at the very top. I think it's extremely strong number two or three, maybe in my personal ranking, but it's one of his films that is lesser known, uh, than, than some of his other ones, which is, is strange to me because I think this film kind of, in a lot of ways has it all. It's extremely artful. Just the, the directing, the acting, um, the the cinematography, all of it is just very well done. It's extremely entertaining. It's got this kind of Hitchcockian uh, mystery aspect to it that's incredibly engaging. And it's got maybe what I would call one of the best performances of the, of the decade in Kim Hye-ja's portrayal of Mrs. Yoon, the mother the, in this story. I think she is just, she's practically a force of nature. And so every time I revisit this film, this is the third time I've watched it now, I am just constantly blown away by it and really find new things to appreciate about it every time. So I think it's obviously pretty strong. I'm curious to know, since this is. Your first time through with, with this film, I really want to know what your take is, though. Yeah,
0: so I, I still haven't seen Memories of Murder. I keep talking about that movie and was going to watch it, and it's just it's nowhere to be found. And I, I think that might be because there are some individuals who believe that the killer that's investigated in that film has been caught or at least identified. So it's I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Uh, so I haven't seen that film. And whenever I, I think about Bong's films, I, I read a review recently, and somebody said it, it's off-kilter. His movies are off-kilter. And I think that's a great way to describe his movies uh, in a very positive sense. And this one is off-kilter, But it's more in line with something like Parasite than it is with Oakjaw or Snowpiercer. Which, those films feel like they're more comedy than drama. This one feels more drama than comedy, though it is a pretty funny movie. And you mentioned Hitchcock. There are some serious Hitchcock vibes in this film. Uh, the ideas of, of obsession, fits of rage. There's a fire in this movie, and it just, it reminds me of the fire in, in Rebecca, Hitchcock's Rebecca. And then, especially, the relationship between mother and son, which I feel like that, that bubbles below the surface of almost every Hitchcock movie. And at the same time, This is one of those films that I think people are going to watch and say, oh wow, it just subverts our expectations. It begins as a detective story, and I I would say probably the first hour and a half. It's a... The story's pretty straightforward. This mother follows leads which lead her to more clues, which eventually uh, reveals something, and I won't say what. And yet the film at that revelation makes this twist and it becomes something altogether different. And there's that subversion there. I, I, I thought the story was was fantastic and it gives you a lot to think about. And I can see how going back and watching this movie again for the second or third time would only add to the movie's, I, I guess you'd say, meaning and, and even the overall enjoyment of the picture because there's there's so much in this movie uh, that, that Bong puts in there. And I, yeah, I just, I, I really do appreciate it. I, I like the movie a lot. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think the
1: thing that you point out about the film kind of shifting, shifting tracks over the course of its runtime, going from a mystery to a drama, there's some very comedic moments in this film as well, uh, points to one of the things that uh, I really appreciate about Bong as as a filmmaker is that he his films tend to resist pigeonholing. There's not a way, there's often not an easy classification that you can put on his films where they they just kind of color within the lines of that particular genre. So for instance, his earlier film The Host, which I think is a 2005 film might be 2007. I'm not quite. Uh, sure, off the top of my head, but this is a monster movie, yes, but it's got some scenes in it that are just not at all what you expect from a typical monster movie. There's a funeral scene that turns kind of into a slapstick comedy scene where, you know, all these mourners are expressing their grief in such over the top ways that it stops being tragic and becomes funny. In this film, for instance, there's the opening shot which shows this this main character mrs yoon walking through this wheat field and the music on the soundtrack begins to play and she kind of does this dance to it which is a little bit funny looking and at first you kind of want to laugh at it but the entire time uh, Kim kie jais face is just utterly stony and, and even mournful. So you've got this weird juxtaposition of the comical and the deeply, deeply serious. And that's a line that Bong's films tend to tread. And he's kind of an exemplar of a sensibility that you see in a lot of South Korean films, where th- that it's almost like there's this viewpoint that, real life doesn't necessarily fit neatly into a particular tone or overall narrative. So why should movies try to do that? And I think Bong captures that quality of life in his films. And he does it with an artfulness that makes it feel not like his films are lurching from one tone to another, but they're they're kind of this patchwork quilt of stuff that all just fits together really neatly. And you come away from it having had a singular experience but also feeling like it was weirdly true to the real world even if you've never actually experienced that particular blend of tones in a in a single 2-hour period in your own
0: life yeah it's i mean it's really wonderful how he is able to do that and almost every time i talk about him as a filmmaker it's almost like this amazement how how does he make that work but it like you mentioned it feels very realistic because in our lives, you know, you could be simultaneously laughing and, and crying at the same second. And um, it's just wild how he embeds that realistic quality into his movie and uh, movies. And in this one, you know, it begins with that with that shot. It's, it's very sparse. And I think the first section of the film could be considered sparse. And I think that it sets up the movie to uh, just visually, to be about uh, connectiveness, and to be about isolation, and we see that in this character, we see that in this society. These characters are uh, cut off from one another. They don't quite understand each other. They are separated from different sections of society. At the very beginning of the film, you have uh, a rich individual. Uh, hit uh, Kim's son and the mother's son, and it just sets up this hierarchy, this separation. And with this mother character, we have an individual who sells herbs and who performs acupuncture, and that's done to help people's memory that's done to release bad memories, to release stress. And what we see is, we see a society, at least a group of people, here, that instead of finding protection and connection with one another, they're finding other ways to accomplish that. So we see that visually, we see that through the story throughout the movie. So setting that up, this fractured world you can understand this is a mother who will do whatever she can to keep her family together, to keep that one piece of her life that's connected to the world together. And that kind of changes your perception of the movie, and it helps you to get a good window into her obsession. It's not just a personal problem. It's a problem with, with the society she's embedded in. One of the things that I think
1: is so compelling about this film is that we're so used to seeing movies about uh, protective parents, particularly mothers, I think are often we 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 love stories about mothers who will just they'll stop at nothing to get justice for. For their child, or they'll stop at nothing to protect their child or get their child back. And that's, that's a story that we all love to root for because that's a such a positive quality uh, in, in, uh, in a mother or in any parent to see that kind of drive to, to protect and love and serve uh, the child that they've raised from birth. What's compelling about this film to me is that Bong explores how that is a very touching Bond, but also how for this particular character, that Bond can become, like you said, an obsession where it's not just something she does out of love for her son, but she also does it because there's there's this need for her to, to protect him, almost because it's something that. She she sees this as a need for herself rather than protection that he particularly needs. I mean, this is a film about her trying to solve or trying to gather clues that will lead to his exoneration. But the lengths that she goes to in order to do that, in order to achieve that goal, are a little bit morally dubious. And as the film goes on, and you and she begins to. Uh, uncover things from both the past and the present that reflect on, that give us, I guess, a fuller picture of who she, who she was and who she is, we begin to see that the relationship between her and Dojun is a lot more complicated than we originally suspected. And that shows some facets, both of, of parenthood and just of humanity uh, that I think are really compelling to think about. Specifically, what does it mean to to care for another person? Uh, this is something I, I feel like Bong, as his career has gone on, it's shown that he's really concerned with class and caring for the less fortunate members of society. And in this case, that kind of takes the shape of a mother caring for her her less fortunate son. He has some disabilities and the need for that and also the fact that because she's so alone in doing that she's just one flawed person that itself can be twisted just because putting all that responsibility on one frail woman old woman is that's going to lead to tragedy in the
0: end and i think it's so it's so interesting to watch that unfold over the course of this picture oh yeah and there's this great dissolve this transition it's an image of Dojun and his mother they're in bed and there's this uh, dissolve this fade to the body of this young girl who has been murdered and it says so much, the film says so much with that transition and what that might mean for these for these characters I, I was thinking about this film Kevin, I'm, I'm watching the movie and at the beginning of the film one character uh Dojoon he is trying to get back at the individuals who hit him and then drove away and his friends there at this golf course it's really a beautiful golf course it's filmed uh, fantastically and Dojoon uh, in response to his friend he says oh you know, this this is revenge that's what they're trying to do this is revenge and i i have to say due to my lack of knowledge of south korean cinema i feel like i'm only I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with many of the revenge flicks that have made their way to America, whether that's old boy or, or handmaiden. Um, I haven't seen those movies, but whenever I think about South Korean cinema, I think of of revenge. And so I'm thinking about that uh, with with this movie. And later on, one of the friends says that there are only three motives for murder. There's money, there's passion, and then there's there's vengeance. And we see characters motivated by money. Many of the characters are simply motivated by money. We see characters motivated by passion. And then we get to the mother, and she has this almost maternal quest for vengeance, but she doesn't necessarily know where to direct that. And it's this fascinating sort of twist or look at, at passion and bonds and what those compel us to do. And I, I don't know exactly what it all means in the context of the story, but it does relate back to that f- mother-son relationship, those bonds that connect them, and the obsession that this character has with seeing her son out of prison at the beginning of the movie she says clearly to him hey whether you did whether you committed this murder or not tell them you didn't do it and it's this rather than justice and maybe that's a good way to, to think about revenge it's not just about justice revenge takes it further instead it says i, I just i want to feed my desires whether those lead to justice or whether they lead to in, lead to, to injustice
1: yeah, it, it's a it's a moment that is really familiar for anyone who's seen Parasite, which also is very much concerned with the fact that all of its characters, whether they're the rich characters or the lower class characters, all of them are kind of looking out for number one. They want to get theirs because they know that nobility doesn't pay in the way that society is fit together. They know that if they don't scrape, scrape, and scramble, and claw their way to a goal, then they'll get trampled. And you see that in this film in terms of the way that Mrs. Yoon teaches Dojun to kind of make his way through the world. You can't, you you often expect characters uh, with. Dojun's limitations to be portrayed as sort of um, saintly figures or, or kind of there's this there's often this tendency in cinema to portray uh, cognitively disabled characters as being saintly somehow, like their their uh, limitations somehow give them an understanding of higher things that we as uh, normative, cognitively normative people don't have access to. Bong doesn't fall into that trap. He Dojun is very much human And part of the reason we learn that he is the way that he is is because his mother teaches him, if somebody hits you, hit back twice. If somebody calls you a retard, you beat them up. You don't take it. You you go after them. And that's uh, a teaching that he really takes to heart. And you understand that she's not telling him that because she's a bad person or an aggressive person, it's because she understands that if Do Jun doesn't fight for himself, nobody will fight for him. And that's a mindset that's very much informed by her own status as somebody who's kind of bullied by her boss and has to give acupuncture almost for free in order to get other people to do her favors because otherwise nobody's really looking out for her. And Bong is really, does a good job of portraying that situation with compassion while also being very clear-eyed about the fact that that will bear bad fruit down the line. And I think that uh, that's just a a one way that his refusal sort of color within the lines of particular conventions really shines in this in this film.
0: and I, I think that that relates to some of the I don't know if you'd say religious or lack of religious backdrop to this film. You have a country like South Korea where a little less than the population, uh, less than one third of the population, just less than one third, uh, is is Christian. Uh, so three out of ten is is a pretty good number. And then you have almost half of the population have no religious affiliation whatsoever, and. <sighs> Bong seems to be tapping into the idea of a spiritual climate. Uh, characters I don't know it just stuck out to me differently. Characters using God's name, using the Lord's name in vain and yet operating as if they have to they have to watch out for themselves. There's no one up there watching out for them. And if you think of some of the sparseness of the film, you think of that opening shot where it's just a field of tall grass and and that's it. With the mother character, there seems to be this this spiritual emptiness and this desire for something more. It's it's kind of there. And you know, maybe there's something in the background, maybe there's some people who are involved with it. But, you know, ultimately, we are looking out for ourselves and society is fractured and we have each other and that's it. And so you got to hold on to the person closest to you, even, you know, even if, um, they could have done something, you know, terrible, uh, in the end. And we start to figure out what happened, uh, to this young girl who was murdered over the course of the movie. And it definitely pushes us to consider, um, who the heroes are, who are the villains and how these people were, 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 created this way or molded uh this way
1: yeah there's a way that bong sneakily explores the question of what do people owe each other uh through this film obviously mrs yoon feels that she owes her son uh exoneration like everything every sacrifice that she can possibly make she wants to make for him and her reasons for feeling that strongly about it uh are f- flushed out more fully o- over the course of the film but even going beyond that central relationship there's a whole host of characters surrounding them where that's also a question that's explored so there's another man with uh, cognitive disabilities who who has no parents and there's nobody really looking out for him in the same way that Missus Yun is looking out for Dojun. There is the the murder victim who we come to find out, uh, while while she was alive, she was essentially selling herself in order to get food and alcohol for the grandmother that she had to care for all by herself. This teenage girl being the caretaker in that way, and again, nobody really feeling like they owed her anything, and so she is kind of has to look out for herself. And over the course of the picture, Bong really explores, well, why why don't other characters feel like they they need to to step in and do something? Why does the the police detective not feel the need to stop the pressure of the interrogation that gets Dojun to sign a confession? Why doesn't the Uh, The friend of Dojun, why doesn't he help until Mrs. Yoon pays him something? There are all these elements that come together that Bong uses to show the extraordinary pressures on the the central duo of a mother and son. But also the pressures that might just be lurking outside the frame for all these other characters that may be uh, encouraging them to act this way. Even this very side character of a homeless man there, there comes a moment where people just sort of forget about him. And that forgetting is something that is also very much part and parcel of what Bong is doing with this film. And I, I think
0: too, you mentioned forgetting. So a big part of this film is is memory. I mean, you could call this film Memories of Murder if you wanted to because memory plays such a, <coughs> a huge part of, of just even the story. And we learn, too, just like, like society is fragmented, our memories are fragmented as well. We remember something. It didn't ex- actually happen that way or – one memory is stronger than another we have traumatic memories that we attempt to suppress we attempt to to forget at at one point the mother believes that acupuncture can clear the memories uh in inside and yeah the the way that she she puts that is
1: that it can it can untie the knots in your heart mm-hmm. and cause you to forget bad memories it's just a beautiful bit of writing there.
0: It is. And there's this scene that's just really kind of fantastic where uh someone is interrogating a classmate of the murdered girl and we're hearing a recording of that and yet we see the interrogation and then when the classmate is talking about this murdered girl and he's remembering a scene with her. The camera pans down and we actually see that scene kind of played out a close up of this murdered girl's face. And it's really this great way to visualize how memory works within us and what it can do to us and what it causes us to do. And so that's another uh, thematic element to this movie, which feels like there's you know, just kind of so much in this film. Um, when initially, it, it feels like a, a a pretty straightforward murder mystery.
1: Yeah, and Bong is uh, careful to suggest at the end of the film that this story that we just watched and, and this, this woman who's been the center of our attention for so long, just merely the fact that she's the center of this story doesn't necessarily make her special. The final shot is of... <laughs> kind of a group of people all dancing on a bus. It's together. so cool. And it's such a cool shot. It's, it's it's a it's an incredible final shot. Um, and Bong just kind of keeps his camera trained on this bus as it's in motion driving down the road, and we we know that uh, the our main character is on that bus somewhere. Like we we know that she's on there uh, somewhere in that mass of dancing bodies. And the music from the opening scene is playing over this closing scene as well. But all we can see are the silhouettes of the crowd. And she's kind of lost in the crowd. It's something to suggest that they're, they're maybe all dancing together. Maybe they're all dancing together in an attempt to forget what they've left behind them at the bus station. And in that way, Mrs. Yoon really... She's not all that different from any other person, and that's just a a note that I find just perfect to close out this film.
0: on. Yeah, well, and everybody's kind of dancing, and she's kind of walking through them, and you you see this this image of all these people dancing, and you think they're all doing it together, they're all kind of connected together. But then, as the mother kind of strolls through, she she's she's not really a part of of. The overall moment, she's kind of walking through it and it's this other layer of how you can have this crowd of people and they all look like they're kind of in motion together, uh, but they are fragmented. They are isolated. And um, yeah, a great shot to... Uh, to end the movie on. And I think that's a great way to end this conversation on Mother, uh, the 2010 film from Bong Joon-ho. As you mentioned, this film is available to rent. So listeners, you should definitely check it out. And then we'd love to hear your thoughts as we kind of go through this South Korean cinema marathon. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be back in just a moment. We're going to offer you some recommendations for, I don't know, maybe your quarantine viewing if you need something to kind of keep your week (laughs) going. So we'll be right back here in just a second. Listeners, we are back, and this is the part of the show where we're going to recommend something from the world of television and or film. Kevin, people are in dire need of recommendations right now, preferably something that's streaming. Uh, So this is a big task. You're going to go first. What would you like to recommend to our listeners this week?
1: Well, given the current situation... Uh, I was kind of at first leaning towards well, what's a good kind of outbreak oh, no. <laughs> film to recommend? And so you know, I, I thought about you know the the Dustin Hoffman Rene Russo film Outbreak from the '90s. I thought about Contagion from from Steven Soderbergh, and both of those those were were are I think they're both good movies. I was like, maybe it's just a little bit too close to home. Even though I like particularly Contagion quite a bit. But then I remembered that Steven Soderbergh has another bit of entertainment that's not a movie, but that might kind of be appropriate for our time without necessarily striking too close to home. I'm thinking of the two-season television show that he created for Cinemax called The Nick. And this is streaming on Hulu, and also I think you can pay to rent it on Amazon Prime if that's your platform of choice. But this is a really interesting, almost procedural TV show about uh, medicine around the turn of the 20th century. So it's set in 1900 at the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York City. And it stars Clive Owen as the master surgeon of this hospital, essentially as the world of medicine is seeking to modernize. So it's sort of set on this threshold between the old way of doing medicine, which was very, you know, there weren't very many scientific... uh, the, The world of science hadn't really made its way into the world of medicine yet. There were a lot of really what we would call primitive surgical methods in use. And Soderbergh's series kind of explores how medicine really changed and new techniques were introduced. It's really fascinating from a procedure standpoint. The character work is really great. Andre Holland plays a an African-American doctor who is, you know, the best in his field but still has to fight prejudice against him simply because of the color of his skin, not because of his expertise. And all of these things come together in just this really well-shot, well-written absorbing look at this particular period in New York City's history, and it, it's based on the actual Knickerbocker Hospital. It's a fascinating story, so if you're kind of looking for something a little bit medicine-themed but not plague-themed, then <laughs> the Nick might be the show for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've thought about this show for a while. Okay, should I get into it? I don't—I'm not a big medicine-themed person because that stuff makes me— queasy especially the idea of like turn of the century type of medicine i don't know i don't know how how does the the show work on that level
1: well if you if you're squeamish this might not be the show for you it's it does uh depict surgeries and it's harrowing stuff if you're the sort of person who gets faint at the sight of blood or who just doesn't like watching surgery scenes maybe not the the show for you but if that stuff doesn't bother you it's it's utterly fascinating to to see this period appropriate recreation of of medicine and its applications so I, I don't know, wait, maybe for you, this isn't the best recommendation, <laughs> but I, I'm sure that somewhere out there in seeing and Believing Nation, there's somebody who is going to check this out and and have a, a great
0: time. Yeah, again. no, no, I and, and it's good to know that it's on Hulu. so a lot of people subscribe to to that streaming service so maybe they can they can get to it. So speaking of squeamish, Kevin, um, my next recommendation has to do with <laughs> McDonald's. So there is a new documentary that's just been released through HBO. Uh, it's called McMillions. It's directed by James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazart. It's a six-episode documentary about how McDonald's, the McDonald's Monopoly game uh, was scammed in the 1990s and how almost no random person won any of the big prizes. Uh, the people who won those prizes were people chosen by an individual working on on the inside, uh, particularly through a company that was hired out by McDonald's. Now, I'll say this. Six episodes is probably too long for this story, but it is a pretty entertaining ride. And I think what this documentary does well is it looks at the desperation that people, uh, the desperation of individuals and the desperation that compels individuals to uh, put their faith in this type of game. And regardless of the fact of, of whether they they bought their way into the prize money, uh, we can see people uh, certainly um, putting a lot of hope into these types of um, opportunities, I guess, if you will. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun. I think it comes together in the last episode, very well. Uh, the big idea reigns. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. Plus, there is a FBI agent who's interviewed. His name's Doug Matthews, who's great. He's, he is a character. So a, a lot of fun. It's streaming on HBO, if you have that, um, McMillions.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I actually watched... I, I've watched the first episode... Of of this show, or maybe the first two episodes, and you're right that there are some colorful characters in this one for <laughs> sure. I haven't finished it though, so I, I uh, maybe am looking forward to doing that, especially since you've you've given me a recommendation. Um, unfortunately, I read the the article about okay. the same scam, yeah. so I kind of I know how it ends, which is why I've maybe dragged my feet a little bit on on finishing up the documentary because you know. As with any story, knowing the ending might spoil it a little bit, yeah. but
0: maybe I should uh,
1: take a closer look next time I get a chance.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just one, it's kind of fun just to turn on. And, and you know, even as some of the later episodes, like, you might not, you don't always have to be necessarily engaged 100%. You know, you watch it while you're folding laundry or whatever. It's kind of a, that type of television show. But, uh, yeah, that's there. Well... <laughs> Those those kinds of
1: shows are are good too. Sometimes you need something to sort of, you just need to kind of not focus on anything, yeah. <laughs> which is part of of life in in the age
0: of coronavirus. As yeah, well, so. no, you definitely do. <laughs> Listeners, we want to say thank you for tuning into this episode of Seeing and Believing. A couple things before we go, we very much appreciate all of you who supported us through our Patreon campaign. If you hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, you can support us there. We got a lot of great perks. We just released a discussion uh, here recently about our 11 through 20 picks of the decade, and we're thinking through what bonus episodes we can kind of pop up there next. Uh, we've got a little extra time on our hands, so we'll see what comes of that. And a <laughs> couple different levels, donation levels. You get some perks. One of those, our favorite, we talk about this every week, it's the what can you buy for $5 perk. And it's a good question. Um, I know people are trying to save cash right now. You never know what the future will hold. But, Kevin, if someone had 5 bucks to spend, what what could they buy for $5?
1: Well, you know, I did mention that I had built a castle out of toilet paper and hand sanitizer, parapets and all. And there will come a day when I won't need that castle anymore. So $5 to the lucky winner of that toilet paper and hand
0: sanitizer castle. <laughs> I I think that that's, that might be worth more than $5 uh, currently. That might be worth hundreds of dollars. <laughs> I,
1: I don't know. If... if uh given my overall handiwork history like i'm not the the handiest person in in the world
0: so five dollars might be a little bit generous for it actually well hey who knows uh listeners just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast we appreciate all the support sorry let me say that again Listeners, just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast. We appreciate all of your support.
1: Yeah, your support also gives us the wherewithal to keep going through uh, thick and thin with the podcast. So we are looking forward to the next three weeks where we are going to be journeying through the world of South Korean cinema. Obviously, it's a huge world. We are only going to be looking at a few films, but we hope that we're getting a good cross-section of them with these picks. Next week, we're going to be looking at Kim Ki-Young's 1960 film, The Housemaid, considered kind of a, a fountainhead of South Korean cinema, one of the giants in their own history of film. Make sure, if you're watching along, listeners, to get the 1960 version, because it was remade in 2011, and it's not to be confused with the Handmaiden, which is a whole nother ball of wax. <laughs> yes, yes. Then the week after that, <laughs> the week after that, we're going to be moving on to the film to a film from director Kim Ki-duk. That spring, summer, fall, winter, dot, 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 and spring. So definitely check that out two weeks from now. And then we're going to round things off with a film that I like quite a bit and also really gets into what Seeing and Believing loves, which is Questions of Faith. That's Li Cheng Dong's Secret Sunshine from 2007. This is a film about forgiveness and how difficult it can be. It's going to be uh, a good film and also a very appropriate film on the eve of Easter. So we might extend our marathon beyond that point, but we're definitely getting those three on the docket and uh we're looking forward to talking about
0: all of them for you yes listeners and we want to thank you again for listening to this episode it's brought to you by our patreon supporters and christinpopculture.com we're excited about the next month and we're gonna see where this takes us as a podcast our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade bearden my co-host is kevin McLennathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later.
1: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at Christinpopculture.com slash network. Theme
0: music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.